Good morning. I really thought Matt would at least introduce me. <laughs> but he said, oh no, you can do that yourself. This is Vicki. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. Um, I'm Vicki Stocking. I'm um, really excited to be here and love Chapel Hill every day. But today I'm especially excited because I get to read the passage that we just studied in Bible study this week. So I'm really excited about that. But first, he wanted me to introduce myself. So I live in Chapel Hill. I work for the Robertson Scholars Program, which is at UNC and at Duke. Reconciliation. Yes, you see, even nice people can be part of Duke University. Um, I don't remember exactly when I started coming here, but I do remember that it was the first day in my life of going to church that I took notes. Matt was preaching, and it was so interesting, and I was rummaging around in my purse for something to take notes with. I've never done that in my many years of being in church. I also remember that, that, that my very first day here, Robert um, introduced himself and has been my friend ever since. Mm -hmm. So Amen. love Chapel Hill, amazing things happen here. Um, so um, we do have a Bible study called The Story on Tuesdays, and it's amazing. And I'm really pleased that, <laughs> Maggie, was that you? <laughs> I re I'm really pleased to read this passage today, um, The Road to Emmaus. I was hoping I wouldn't need my glasses, so I printed it in big letters, but I need my glasses anyway. So. <laughs> this is from um, the New Revised Standard Version. This is Luke 24, 13 to 35. Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place here? He said, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yet, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. Then he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was not it necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself 
and all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he was going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. It's almost evening. The day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road, when he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, he got up and returned to Jeru they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the 11 and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Amen. Thank you, Vicki. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much. I know. <laughs> enough said. Enough said. <laughs> Thank you, Vimla. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, you meet us on the road while we're talking and we're discussing and we're asking our questions and we're trying to figure out, we're confused, we're trying to make sense of it and you meet us in the middle of that confusion and you begin to open our eyes and then you break the bread and our eyes become completely open and we see who you are and the whole thing comes together and we pray for that today. I pray that there will be people here who experience you in a way that they cannot deny today. I pray that there will be people here who have been examining your claims, who have been exploring who you are, but today they're going to experience who you are. We pray that you will break through in a way like only you can. Open our eyes. Meet us on the road. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We all have questions. We all have questions. A couple weeks ago, uh, my friend Joshua Paxson. Stand up, Josh. Everybody give Josh a big hand. Come on, buddy. There it is. Josh sent me a great text. If you guys don't know Josh, Josh is a, one of the key leaders in our church. Uh, he volunteers a lot of his time driving the love bus. And so some of you are in church today because of Josh's ministry and service here in the church. Josh is also, uh, aside from being the pilot of the love bus, he's also kind of like Love Chapel Hill's fashion icon. <laughs> All right. I told him somehow Josh looks like he's wearing his grandpa's clothes and he's still 10 years ahead of me in fashion. All right. I meant that as a compliment. You make it cool. All right. It's like classic cool, okay? I think that was, I think that came across not as a compliment, but I really did mean it as a compliment, I promise. All right, Lord help me. All right. <laughs> so Josh sent me this text about a question that his son Henry asked. Henry just turned four years old. Many of you guys know Henry. Let's see these pictures. There he is, Henry Paxson. He's the, uh, the co-pilot of the love bus. All right, let's get to that one of, 
Henry waiting to get picked up by the, oh, there he is, cool kid. There he is. <laughs> Sarah Paxson sent me that picture. Hitchhiking with the love bus, all right? Unless he's kind of like the co-pilot of the love bus with Josh there. Uh, but Josh sent me this text that Henry asked him this question. What if God thinks he's God, but then tries to heal somebody and it doesn't work and realizes he's not God? Well, the universe falls apart at the seams. <laughs> and we're all doomed. <laughs> Sleep good, Henry. All right. <laughs> wow. Followed by this question, he then asked, how can God make our bodies if he's inside our bodies? Great question. My response back to Josh was, he's a theologian that is brilliant and have fun with that. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) We all have questions, right? We're wired to ask them. We've been asking them since the moment we've been able to form sentences together. We've been asking questions since the moment we've been able to do that. We're wired to ask questions. And and any any of you who've ever been around kids, you know, questions just come, 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 come. They're just constant and they're about everything. But we're especially wired to ask questions about God. There's this deep sense of longing that is built into us. That's hardwired into us. To wonder about the mystery. Of God, And we try to get our minds around it. And I think the questions that kids ask us shed so much light on the mystery of who God really is. Sometimes as we grow up, we can become numb to the mystery, but they keep us awake to the mystery of who God really is. We're starting a series today called Explore God. And like you heard in the video, it's not just us. This is something that 50 other churches across the triangle are partnering together and doing this series together. I love that. So we're joining up with 50 other churches across the triangle and we're asking these same questions together. We're wrestling with this together. Our friends at the Point Church are the ones who are really spearheading this and invited us uh, to be a part of it. And uh, we want to partner with other churches any way that we can. So a week ago, we had the Good Friday service where we came together with seven other churches from here in Chapel Hill. And uh, it's been beautiful to see the way that that has grown over the years and more churches getting involved. At the end of this month, April 29th, we're doing our Community Worship Sunday where we're going to join together with two other churches, Grace Community Church and uh, St. Joseph's uh, CME Church. And we're going to come together for to embody racial reconciliation within our community. These churches who are coming from different backgrounds and different experiences joining together. And today we're, we're living that out as well by partnering with these other churches in this sermon series that we're doing together. These foundational questions, these crucial questions. And today we're here starting with the most foundational question of all about the irreducible centerpiece of our faith. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The way you answer that question will determine the way you live the rest of your life. Who is Jesus? It's not just a question for the historians and the philosophers and the theologians. 
It's a question that is put to every single one of us. Who is Jesus? And then what are you going to do with that? It's the question that these two disciples walking along the road to Emmaus were wrestling with, trying to make sense of what just happened. Who is this person? On the same day as the resurrection, it says, they're walking along and they're trying to piece together the fragments of what they thought was their broken story. And Jesus steps into the middle of it. He meets them on the road and he reveals to them who he is. So we're going to lean into that passage today. We're going to wrestle with this question. It's a crucial question, not only to understanding Christianity, but really to understanding world history up to this point. You can't really study world history without wrestling with this figure of Jesus. Historians, philosophers, theologians, they've dedicated their careers to searching out this question. His name, the name of Jesus, is known in countless cultures. Varied religious traditions honor his life and his ethics and his teachings. He's a mainstay of popular culture and he's an enigma to the experts. Biblical scholars have launched wave after wave in their quest to discover who is this historical Jesus. And it has resulted in many helpful conclusions. But still, there's no consensus that these different quests have been able to come to on who they see Jesus to be, except two things that have come out of it. Number one, every historian, every serious historian, it doesn't matter what they believe, doesn't matter what kind of faith tradition they're coming from, doesn't matter which way they tend to lean, Every serious historian now says it's a historical fact that there was a real person named Jesus who lived in that day and time. And number two, that he and his followers, this unlikely band of people, have somehow reshaped the entire world. No one can deny that fact, that there was this person named Jesus. They all agree on that fact. They don't know what to make of him, but they know that he existed. And they also know that the world is a different place because he existed, that something happened surrounding the event of this backwoods preacher from Nazareth that has changed the history of the world. Who is he? Who is Jesus? We're going to wrestle with that together today. I, I was remembering this week of um, a trip that Sarah and I took a couple years ago when we went to Boston. And uh, we went to Harvard as part of our trip. All right, Harvard. Did I do that right? <laughs> Southern accent, close enough, all right? So uh, we went to Harvard, and it was, it was great. We had a great time exploring the city of Boston and just really loved all of the history and just nerding out completely on that. We're a good match in that way. And uh, so here we are in, this, in the bookstore on the campus of Harvard, and uh, with all of these books surrounding us, it was incredible. And I find myself, it dawned on me as I'm looking through this, uh, I'm looking at a book that's basically a book of infographics. And I'm like, I'm in the Harvard bookstore looking at a picture book. Come on, man. What does that say about me? All right. So anyway, uh, in the middle of that, there was this, this graph that just grabbed my attention. And it was about the true geniuses of history. And it mapped out the true geniuses of history and the people who were the most progressive thought and action leaders throughout the history of the world. And those who were truly ahead of their time. 
And I went through that list of people and I watched this pyramid of these names and faces of these people who have shaped the world, who we talk about all the time. We're in awe of their genius and they're at the top of the pyramid completely by himself in his own category is the person of Jesus. It was beautiful. A true genius completely ahead of his time and in every way that they could rank him. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. It was beautiful. I'm standing there in the middle of that and it moved me and it shook me and it made me ask myself the question, who is this person and what do we make of this man? What do we make of his life? How could this be? The same question is actually being asked by these disciples here on the road to Emmaus. What do we make of this man? What just happened? What was that event that we witnessed and what is happening now? Who was he? What do we make of his life and of his death and of these strange rumors of his resurrection? The women came and told us that he appeared to them. And of course, the men didn't believe it. Right. They had to go see for themselves. And then when when Jesus wasn't there, they're like, I still don't know what's going on. And the women were like, we saw him. We told you. All right. Wake up. We're still trying to make sense of it. Y'all need to wake up, too. I'm just kidding. (laughs) And where in the world do we go from here? Where do we go from here? This is what they're wrestling with. The women told us these rumors. We don't know what to make of them. And now some of our other fellow disciples have seen, and we don't know what to make of it. Where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? We're going to look at this passage together and take it bit by bit. And examine this this conversation that they're having together and these questions that they're asking that will bring us down to that answer of who Jesus is. Let's start here. Let's start with the fact that not only does this happen on the same day as the resurrection, but it gives us another key uh, piece just to get some context for the story. And it tells us the town that they are walking towards, right? Seven miles from Jerusalem. And what's the name of the town that's listed there? Emmaus all right what is Emmaus famous for exactly we don't know right (laughs) to us we're like yes that place with the road where the people met Jesus all right great cool okay here's the question what is Pearl Harbor famous for say what all right getting bombed exactly the the attack on Pearl Harbor right okay what about Gettysburg what is the name Gettysburg famous for the Civil War, okay, and then Lincoln's famous Gettysburg Address on that key battlefield in the Civil War. See, we say these names of towns and immediately history comes into place, right? It comes flowing in and we're thinking about, when we think about Pearl Harbor, we think about that event December 7th and we're like, this day that will live in infamy and we think of FDR and we think of World War II. When we think about Gettysburg, immediately all of this history of the Civil War and Lincoln's Address, it comes flowing in For the people originally hearing this story, the same thing would happen when they hear the name of the town Emmaus. Boom, they're there in their minds. They go there and history starts flowing together. These two disciples that are from Emmaus and are headed from Jerusalem where the crucifixion has happened and where these rumors of resurrection have taken place. And they're making their way back to Emmaus, this place that they're from. They have grown up in this context of a a key battlefield 
for the people of Israel, for the Jewish people. They've been raised in the history of it. They've been soaking in the history of that place. Here's what Emmaus was known for. About 150 to 200 years before the time of Jesus, there was a Jewish uprising in that place led by a man named Judah Maccabee, also sometimes referred to as Judah the Hammer. That's a good nickname, all right? (laughs) Judah the Hammer, all right? And so he is this military figure who gets the people of Israel together and leads this revolt against the people that were oppressing them. And he overthrows the oppressors and he ushers in what is known as 100 years of peace and prosperity for the Jewish people. It's this unlikely event. They were completely outnumbered. But through this brilliant strategy and this legendary courage, Judah Maccabee leads the people in this in this revolt and they can't stop talking about it. It's part of their history. It's part of the the pride of who they are. What went down at Emmaus? Now, flash forward to the time of Jesus and Jesus comes on the scene and he starts talking about being the Messiah, being the Christ and instituting and establishing the kingdom of God. And immediately the people's minds, they begin to think of that. They begin to think about the military leaders from before. And they think Jesus is going to be a figure like Judah Maccabee. That what Jesus is going to do when he establishes the kingdom of God, it means he's going to uproot and overthrow the empire of Rome. That the empire of Rome, they were this oppressive force over the Jewish people, an occupying force in their land, in their, on their land, their home, and that Jesus was going to lead this revolt and overthrow the Roman Empire, just like Judah Maccabee had done. And instead, instead they get this so-called Messiah who is crushed by the Roman Empire, who's put to death on a cross, the symbol of the Roman Empire's strength the symbol that the Roman Empire used to strike fear into the hearts of the people. It wasn't just what was done to Jesus. It's also a form of psychological warfare against anyone else who would want to rise up against the established powers. And they're walking away and they're trying to make sense of it. We thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We thought he was this figure like a Judah Maccabee. We thought he was this Messiah, this king. But now we can't make sense of it these questions that they're wrestling with along the way i want to take their their actual words and i want to just pull out four different things that they say about jesus these four conclusions that they come to in the midst of their confusion and their disillusionment while they're trying to make sense of it it's interesting because these four conclusions that they come to about jesus are the same conclusions that many of the other great minds of history have come to when they've been wrestling down who is Jesus, when they've been on this quest and this search to discover who he is, they come up with the same four categories and same four characteristics. It's interesting. Here's what they say. First, they say he was a prophet. Have you not heard? Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem that hasn't heard what what has taken place? He was a prophet. They put him to death. He was a prophet. What else about him? He was powerful in word. And not just powerful in word, but number three, he was powerful in deed. And then number four, 
We thought he was the one who would redeem Israel. We thought he was the Messiah King coming to lead us. Those four categories. He was a prophet, powerful in word, powerful in deed, and to redeem Israel. Those are still the four categories that people come up with when they try to figure out who Jesus is. Prophet, people look at Jesus as a religious authority, as a significant religious authority. So there are people of other religions who do not worship Jesus as the son of God like Christians do. And yet in their religious traditions, they still admire Jesus and they still look to Jesus and they still refer to Jesus as one of God's great prophets. In Islam, they refer to Jesus as one of the great prophets. They see him as a religious authority, as a holy man sent from God. Number two, people see him as being powerful in words. So they look at him and they say he was an inspiring teacher. He was an inspiring teacher. And the philosophy, the brilliant philosophy that he's introduced to us, it still has impact around the world. And if we would just live by that philosophy, then the world would be a better place. Number three, he was powerful indeed. In other words, he was a moral example. He lived this compassionate and good life. And if we would follow his example, then our lives would be compassionate and good and the world would be a more compassionate and more good place. And four, the redeemed Israel, they saw him as a revolutionary leader. People still look at Jesus and they marvel at the way he sparked this freedom movement that ended up changing that part of the world and well beyond it. People still say that about Jesus. They still see him as one of those four things. But here's what we know about Jesus. He will not fit in any one of those four categories. He simply won't do it because not a single one of those categories is enough to hold him. He can't be held by any one of those categories. He fills them up and he overflows them. He is in a category all by himself because he takes all four of those and he completes them. And he's more than any of those four. He's more than any of them. He is in in a category of his own by his own making completely on his own. There's no one else in history like him. And we can't simply see him as a religious authority or an inspiring teacher or a moral example or a revolutionary leader. He's more than that. He's so much more than that. Christianity as a philosophy is brilliant, absolutely. But Christianity as a philosophy is impossible. It's impossible unless Jesus was who he said he was and has the power to actually transform who we are. Christianity is not something you can live out. It's something you must be surrendered to that Jesus lives through you. Jesus then, it says, he goes on to show them by the scriptures who he is. And it says he starts to walk them back from Moses and the prophets. So understand that when it says that Moses and the prophets, it's not just saying going back in the timeline to Moses and then everything after Moses. Because in the Jewish scripture, our Old Testament, in the Jewish holy scriptures, it was believed that Moses is the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. And so that whole early history, Jesus is going all the way back through that as well and showing them how he has fulfilled everything that the scriptures have said. 
that all of the scriptures have been pointing to him. And now he's the ultimate culmination and fulfillment of those things. And it's his death and his resurrection together that form the lens through which we can understand all of history that came before Jesus. It's all been pointing to him. So the story of Adam, where Adam and Eve fall into sin, and Jesus is the redemption, the one who rescues us from our sin and gives us new life and is the new creation. He goes through the story of Noah, and we realize that, that in the story of Noah that sin creates destruction and devastation, but that Jesus Christ is our rescue from that. And he goes through the story of Abraham, and we realize that every promise that God has given Abraham, this promise that through him all the nations of the world will be blessed, it's fulfilled through Jesus, a son of Abraham. And we look at the story of Moses, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He's the one that deliver, delivers us from slavery and leads us into the promise. We look at the story of David. He, Jesus is the true king that we've been waiting for. And we look at the story of Esther. And we realize that Jesus is the one who saves us from the destruction that is coming to us. We look at the story of Daniel and we realize that Jesus is the one who is lowered into the pit of death. And against all odds, when the stone is rolled back in the morning, he rises up out of it. The whole story has been pointing to Jesus and finds its fulfillment in him. He's the turning point of all of history. All of history before only makes sense. And becomes clear because of who Jesus is. And then all of history after him is impacted in a way that we cannot deny that some earth-altering event took place involving this person in that day and in that time. H.G. Wells said this. He says, I'm not a believer. I'm a historian. But this penniless preacher from Galilee is irresistibly the center of history. Amen. He is that, and he's much more than that. Amen. Jesus taught them who he was, and he walked them through all of the scriptures. Walked them through all the scriptures, and as he's doing that, he's appealing to their intellect. He's appealing to their intellect, but then we see he actually takes it a step further than appealing to their intellect. In verse 28, it says that Jesus acted like he was going to go further. We wrestled with this at Bible study on Tuesday night. We're like, what, what's Jesus doing here? Like, he's just kind of pretending like, uh, you're going to invite me in, all right? It's this weird moment where it seems like Jesus wants to be invited, but he's acting as if he's moving on, and it's strange. But what I think is happening here is that Jesus is opening an opportunity for them. That Jesus is pausing and he's opening this opportunity for them to discover who he is. But he would not force himself on them. He would not force himself on them. This is how Jesus engages with us as well. He initiates. He invites. He intrigues. He inspires. He insists. But he will not force himself on you. He's continually opening opportunities for you to discover who he is and for your eyes to be open. And I, I love this, that it's through their kindness to a stranger that they end up discovering who Jesus is and they end up inviting Jesus himself into their home. They don't know he's Jesus yet, 
Their eyes are still hidden from that. They still don't know that he's Jesus. But it's this act of kindness of inviting a stranger into their home that they actually have an interaction with Jesus himself. One of my favorite preachers says this, through all of our scientific and technological genius, we have made of this world a neighborhood, yet we have not had the ethical commitment to make of it a brotherhood. We have made of this world a neighborhood, but we have not made of it a brotherhood. Everything that's come out about the whole Facebook debacle over the past few weeks, I knew I shouldn't have got on Facebook. All right. All everything that's come out about that and the way that Facebook makes this promise of, of this kind of global neighborhood and this promise of connection. And we see that 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 promise of relational intimacy actually gets manipulated and turned against people. All of our technological advances, we've made this world a neighborhood but we have yet to make it a brotherhood and a sisterhood. They invite Jesus in, and through that act of kindness, their eyes are open. In what? In the breaking of bread. I love that. In the breaking of bread. Now, it's tempting for us to go ahead and jump to the, to the conclusion that this is communion, right? That it's a reenactment of the meal that he had just shared with his disciples that Friday. But it doesn't seem at all like that's what's happening. These two disciples, these are the only time that these two get mentioned. Cleopas gets mentioned by name. We don't even get the other person's name. And it seems to us that they might not have been there at that meal at the Last Supper, right? And so they probably weren't there. So this is not communion and them recognizing Jesus through the act of communion maybe it's them recognizing Jesus as he breaks bread because possibly they were there for the feeding of the 5,000 that's possibly why they recognize him but I think it's deeper than that I think they recognize Jesus at the table because they've had experience after experience after experience of sitting with Jesus at the table not just because of one meal that happened a couple of nights before but because they have been in this relationship with Jesus. And then when they're in, in this relational environment again with them and he breaks the bread in front of them, their eyes get opened and they recognize this person that they have had this relationship with and this ongoing relationship with. Here's the conclusion. Jesus is not a subject to be examined. He is a person to be encountered. He is a person to be encountered. I am convinced that no one ever will be convinced until they first have a personal encounter with Jesus. I don't think anyone's going to be convinced about the reality of Jesus until they have a personal encounter with Jesus. The two men that were on the road were enlightened as they examined the scripture and they explored all of the evidence about who Jesus is and that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is the savior of the world. But their confusion about who Jesus was did not become conviction until there was a personal experience. It was there with Jesus at the table when he breaks the bread in this relational environment that their eyes are open, that their memory is sparked again. Even as, get this, Jesus himself is teaching them the scriptures, right? Jesus himself is walking them through the scriptures. Name a better teacher than that, all right? He's walking them through 
the scriptures and from what the story tells us, they still weren't thoroughly convinced that Jesus was actually the Christ until the breaking of the bread. That's when it all comes together for them. Jesus opened and engaged their minds, and that's, that's incredibly important. And he engaged their intellect as he taught them. But looking back on the story, they couldn't help but notice that their hearts burned within them. Jesus was teaching them, and their intellect was being engaged. But what did they remember? They remembered that their hearts were burning within them as he taught. It's that personal encounter that connected with them on a different level. And that's the reality of Jesus. He is always pulling together the intellect and the heart, the mind and the heart together, and he's binding them together. So I want to challenge you today. Keep searching. Keep searching. Continue on your intellectual quest of who Jesus is. We have people in the room today who are not convinced about the reality of Jesus. You don't believe yet that he is who he says he is. And if that's you, then I want to challenge you. Continue your search. I encourage you in your search. Keep examining the evidence. Keep exploring God. But the experience for you is going to be where the story takes a turn. When you experience him, that's what I'm deeply praying for. That's when it's going to take a turn. It was the experience that turned the story for these two disciples. And then they ran back over the seven miles that they had just traveled with Jesus to tell of the experience they just had. And they ran back to the other disciples. Here's what I want to challenge you with as we close. Three things. Number one, if you're seeking and you're searching, and you don't know what the answer to that question is yet of who is Jesus. You haven't answered that for your own life yet. If that's you, I want to challenge you to do this. Read the Gospels. Choose one of the Gospels and begin to walk through that. Read the Gospel of John. That's my personal favorite, all right? Yeah, but you probably shouldn't rank the Gospels. <laughs> They're all equally amazing, all right? But that's the one that, has, uh, that I have really been diving into that that has connected with me in a really deep and personal way i challenge you to walk through one of the gospels read the story of jesus and walk with jesus through his life story see who he is and i guarantee you that through that journey jesus will meet you on the road he will meet you on the road and as you study and as you're engaging with your intellect he's going to connect the mind and the heart together and you won't really know who he is until you've personally experienced him. So pray for that experience as you read the Gospels. Number two, some of you need to make a public declaration of who Jesus is in your life. And you need to say, I publicly declare that Jesus is my Savior, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that he's my Lord, that my whole life is surrendered to him. And from this point forward, I am following him with my life and if that's you we have a baptism service coming up next sunday and we invite you to be a part of that right after the service we'll go to merits and we'll walk from merits down to morgan creek and we will have an incredible baptism experience there and celebrate new life some of you have been through that experience before and i see y'all smiling at this moment if that's you and you need to make that declaration that proclamation of who jesus is for you then we invite you to be a part of that. And then number three, today, as we close, come to the table. We have this table here, and we observe the table every single week. 
because it's this standing reminder to us that Jesus invites us into this relational environment. And it's a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. We remember that last supper that he shared with his disciples when he took the bread that was on the table and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup that was on the table. And he said, this cup represents my blood, the blood of the new covenant poured out for the salvation of the world. Every time you taste this bread and this cup, remember what I have done for you and experience it in a new and fresh way. So for all of us today, you are invited, if you are prepared to make that declaration, to embrace the love and sacrifice and grace of Jesus Christ in your life. We invite you to come to the table and have your eyes opened through this personal experience with Jesus Christ who poured out his life for your salvation so that you could have an experience with him, so that you could have an encounter with him that would turn your confusion into conviction. Keep exploring, keep searching, but pray for an encounter and pray for an experience. And if you're seeking that today and you're open to that today, then we invite you to his table. There'll be two stations, be one on this side and one on this side. As you come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it into the cup, taste and see that the Lord is good. And there will be a gluten free option on this side if you need it. Come to the table and have your eyes open to the truth of who Jesus is. Amen.